Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Good evening and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH TV, coming to you from Gadigal country on the east coast of Gondwana land. This is the continent where for tens of thousands of years, life was so nasty, brutish and short that infants, invalids and the elderly were often killed by their fellow tribe members, not only because they were too much of a burden, but also because their corpse would help stave off hunger for those unlucky enough to remain. It's also the continent where, according to one Aborigine, tribal conflict previous to white settlement was so constant that, quote, the country was strewed with bones and we were always at war. Then came that fateful day in 1788 when ships loaded with evil white men arrived and in 224 short years turned the place into an urban nightmare full of office towers, houses, shops, schools, roads, hospitals and airports, among other unbearable trappings of modern life. Some natives are still struggling to adapt to the white man's ways, as the charming Senator Lydia Thorpe showed in a Senate hearing in Canberra yesterday. Senator Thorpe, I have said that we've invested $25 million for those organisations which you gave include, the Northern Territory which Police $40 the million. ones that you've spoken about. And how dare you, when we have Disgusting. First Nations people working in the police force, you Are act you protecting as though, the police? no, I'm telling you that we also have that. First Nations police who are doing hey, their best it's still police. to improve the situation police across the Doesn't matter what colour you are. Not just police in are Alice police. Springs. Or so you obviously don't. And police are police. Fourteen million dollars to the police. You do not want to see things Shame improve. on you. No, shame, shame on, you. on you. You're the one who brings disgrace. They're the ones killing our you people. You bring disgrace not you only to this Senate, but to your you own people. You tell that to Yindamu. You are an absolute disgrace. You tell that to Yindamu. You are the disgrace to Kum and Jay Walker's family. How dare you? Well, at least Lydia Thorpe has partially adapted to modern Australia, choosing to resolve this conflict through heckling, followed by petulantly storming out of the Senate meeting room, rather than the traditional Indigenous manner of meeting in the bush and clubbing and spearing each other to death. That would be the last thing we want, not least because Thorpe's shrill style and delusions of political relevance are the best argument we have for voting no in the forthcoming voice to parliament referendum. 
Speaking of which, as the Financial Review reports uh, recently, support for a constitutional change to enshrine a separate Indigenous advisory panel to Parliament has slipped from 65% six months ago to 55% today. This is despite almost comprehensive support for the idea from sporting codes, sports stars, corporations and politicians. In fact, the opposition has grown alongside awareness of the proposal, which now stands at 81%. So it's reasonable to assume that this trend will continue as more people learn about it, right up to the day of voting, whenever that will be. You'd think the proponents of this constitutional change would read something into that. That Australians are still larrikin enough to instinctively push back against elitists who tell them how to vote and how to think. Another person not doing the voice to parliament proposal any favours is Stan Grant, who, despite what he says, has adapted to the white man's ways even more successfully than Lydia Thorpe. Grant is a highly regarded journalist who has worked all over the world and been lauded everywhere he goes. In 2016, he was even named GQ Australia magazine's Agenda Setter of the Year. Well, whatever agenda he was setting, it didn't achieve much because Stan has been a busted record ever since. If anything, this country that he says is so racist has only given him a bigger soapbox and megaphone with which to lambast the rest of us. His latest episode began three weeks ago when his employer, ABC TV, invited him onto a panel to discuss the live coronation of King Charles from London. Oblivious to the fact that he was sitting in a modern, air-conditioned television studio Surrounded by technology made possible by colonisation, he said without even a hint of irony that, quote, we were never seen as a part of modern Australia. Mate, you couldn't be more a part of modern Australia if you delivered the whole thing in a rabbitose guernsey while knocking back a schooner with Albo and sending the whole show out on TikTok. Grant said he couldn't celebrate the coronation because colonial powers representing the same monarchy had in 1824 declared martial law against his people. His people, of course, being the Wiradjuri people from around Bathurst, not the Australian people whose taxes pay his wages. He said the war was reported at the time as a, quote, exterminating war. Well, historical interpretations of this incident vary, but it's only people like Grant who cling to the flimsy evidence that the confrontation around Bathurst in 1824 was anything more than a four-month skirmish claiming a few dozen lives, which ended in an amicable ceasefire. Besides, even the dimmest viewer of the coronation broadcast could see that the so-called extermination had been an appalling failure. Because not only did many of the Wiradjuri people survive, but one of their descendants was on the television talking about it. 
There was obviously a strong rep response to that performance by Grant, and on Monday, he announced he would be stepping away from his regular job, hosting Q&A on ABC TV for a while. Whether he's doing so on full pay, the ABC won't say. Grant's temporary farewell was a masterclass in passive aggression. I am down right now, I am, but I'll get back up and you can come at me again and I'll meet you with the love of my people. My people can teach the world to love. Really? My people, that's the Australian people, could teach the world how to blow tens of billions of dollars a year on pointless programs to close the gap with the descendants of the indigenous. But for some reason, we don't boast about it. Stan also said this. But I'll be okay. Please send that support and care to those of my people and all people who feel abandoned and alone, who are wondering whether they have a place in this country and who don't have my privileges. To those who have abused me and my family, I would just say, if your aim was to hurt me, well, you've succeeded. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I must have given you so much cause to hate me so much to target me and my family to make threats against me. I'm sorry. And that's what Yinjimara means. It means that I'm not just responsible for what I do, but for what you do. It's not just a word. It is sacred. It is what it means to be Wiradjuri. It is the core of my being. Today, a 41-year-old Sydney man was charged with making threats to Grant online. One imagines the judiciary will not be lenient on him. Such is the racism of the modern Australia that Grant feels so alienated by. Speaking of the judiciary, a judge from the New South Wales Supreme Court has criticised a state nationals politician for opposing the voice to parliament. The Australian reported today that Justice Ian Harrison sent an email to the Nationals MP Pat Conaghan saying Conaghan's opposition to The Voice was, quote, disgusting and made him, quote, despair. The email was not intended for publication, but that is what happened when it was forwarded to The Australian. In it, Justice Harrison wrote, quote, there are no sleeping constitutional issues here. It is a simple matter of human decency. Your position and the position of your party is niggardly and cruel and mean-spirited. It is patently based upon a political stance that is indecent and in its ignorance. May you live long enough and inquire sufficient wisdom and self-awareness to be ashamed of yourself. Well, if Stan Grant thinks the imposition of martial law around Bathurst 198 years ago was legally problematic, he might also be concerned about the implications of a judge expressing an opinion like this at a time like this. The Wiradjuri people were able to survive the imposition of martial law all those years ago, and the descendants of those who survived now live in one of the freest and most prosperous nations in history. But can that same nation survive compromises on one of its founding principles, the separation of powers? Well, to answer that, let's bring in John Story, 
The legal expert from the Institute of Public Affairs in Melbourne who has a keen interest in these matters as well as the legal implications of the voice to parliament. John, welcome to the show. Hi Fred, thanks for having me again. John, firstly, let's talk about the separation of powers as a principle. The, this is the idea that judges and politicians exercise their powers in different ways and neither should influence the other. How old is this principle and how crucial is it to our democracy? Well, the, the idea of separate arms of government goes back to the, the, the ancient Greeks, that the concept of the, the separate legislature, judiciary and executive was formed around the 18th century um, by the, the, the French um, jurist de Montesquieu, and that was adopted in the United States Constitution, and which was then a sort of role model for the Australian Constitution of having separate legis legislature, judiciary and executive arms of government. So, but how crucial is this for our democracy? I mean, are we living in a free and prosperous country because those powers were separated from the start? It is an absolute bedrock of liberal democracy, is in particular the separation and an independent judiciary. Um, that works both ways. That is that the judiciary should be free from influence by the government of the day. And we do that in certain ways, such as, um, you know, tenure, so that they can't be removed by the whims of, of a government. But that comes with a quid pro quo that they're expected to be independent and neutral. And, and if you think about it, Fred, if you think of a tin pot dictatorship, one of the most common things you'll, you'll hear about is that the dictator will sack the judges and replace them with his mates sort of thing. It really is a, a cornerstone of liberal democracy and served us well for, for hundreds of years. So how serious is this, is this example? Is this an example today of the separation of powers being compromised? And if so, how serious should we take it? The thing about the separation of powers is there's the sort of formal rules in the constitution about what, what you can and can't do. But really, like a lot of constitutional law, it's the conventions, it's the etiquette, it's the actual behaviour of people that are the framework on which this is built. And there is certain etiquette and understanding that judges do not comment on political matters. Active judges who are you know, currently sitting at the bench do not comment on um, political matters. And in turn, there's an etiquette that the government of the day will, will tread lightly when criticising judges and, and won't, won't get involved in, 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 in active court matters. So this is a, a big deviation from that understanding that judges should be neutral and be seen to be neutral. Well, I think it's that last comment that is the most important, seen to be neutral from the perspective of people like you and I, just ordinary citizens. The biggest concern is, should we ever, you know, find ourselves in the dock? Uh, you know, we want to be confident that the person, uh, you know, conduct, the judge ruling over the court uh, is doing so impartially. And, and appearances matter, don't they, John? 
Yeah, well, maybe a more pertinent example rather than, a, than an individual in the dock would be um, if Justice Harrison should find himself on the High Court and would be interpreting the powers, roles and scope of the voice, which will all, almost certainly come to the High Court in the future at some stage. Um, what confidence would the community have that a justice like Justice Harrison, who has expressed such overt um, support for the concept that he's, he seems disgusted by the very idea that someone could be opposed to it. If a judge like that was to rule in, in respect to some aspect of the constitutional role of the voice, um, what, what, what um, you know, comfort would the community have that it was a fair decision? It's also a little troubling that someone so high in our legal system seems to be disparaging Western, you know, one of, our ability to civilise this country, if you know what I mean. Like, you know, this is meant to be a cornerstone of the civilization that, uh, that colonised this continent and has brought freedom and prosperity. And yet here he is seeming to side with, with, uh, with opinions that undermine that. One of the great ironies of, of, of modern sort of Western culture is that the more privileged people tend to be, the more down they are on their country. Um, the, the Institute of Public Affairs has actually done polling that, that looks at, you know, asks the question of, is Australia a racist country? And the more one of the, the only sort of underlying trend we could discern is that the higher your degree of education, the more racist do you think Australia is? So these are the, you know, the, the corporate high flyers, the legal high flyers, um, people in the media and academia, the ones that benefit the most from a, a free, prosperous society with the rule of law and a great education system, they're the ones that are most down on our, on our system. Um, it's just, it's a very bizarre um, conundrum we find ourselves in. Yeah, I wish I knew. Conundrum's a good word. I wish I knew uh, why it was happening. Now, can we extrapolate from this that the judiciary is becoming bolder about expressing political opinions? I, I think we can. I mean, we should always be careful talking about a, a single case. But, I mean, this was a judge who felt... One of the things that the media is saying is, oh, it was private communication. I almost think that's worse. Uh, and this is a judge who, because of his position, felt entitled to personally contact a member of parliament and chastise him because of his political views. Um, it, it really is one of the most egregious affronts to the separation of power we, we've had in recent years. But it comes on top of some concerning decisions. There have been a number of court cases recently where judges have inserted blatant political opinions, in particular on the issue of climate change, where they've said things such as, well, a climate protester, we've got to let them off because they're experiencing the trauma of climate change. Or another, another case where, the, um, uh, where a minister was told he was breaching his duty of care if he approved a coal mine because he owed a duty of care to children to prevent climate change. I mean, this is the insert, insertion of partisan political opinions into the judicial process. Um, and, and, and it is a real concern. And 
I actually feel that, I mean, this voice is emblematic of it. Look, I went to law school over 20 years ago, and at that time, the highest virtue that was instilled to us was our independence and neutrality. A client shouldn't know what your political views are or what's, what, what you vote for. Compare that to this voice debate where the bar associations and legal societies are all one by one coming out saying, where for the voice, where for the voice? Uh, I mean, where's the independence? Where's the neutrality? No wonder judges are feeling empowered to, 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 to express political opinions yeah, from the bench. Yeah, well said. These are all very disturbing developments. Do you think we're heading towards a more active judiciary? I mean, you, you would, uh, we spoke about it earlier, you said we are heading in the direction uh, towards the United States where judges are chosen for their political persuasions, especially on the Supreme Court. Do you think that's where we're heading? Yes, this has been a trend for several decades now. It can really go back to a line of high court cases where they started um, implying rights into the constitution and effectively giving themselves the power to determine whether those rights have been um, crossed or not. The, the problem with that is that it really does then come down to the political persuasions of the judge as to which way they'll go. And this has just been a toxic aspect of the American political system. They've got a bill of rights with a long list of rights that require interpretation by the courts. And it's become, you know, there is effectively conservative and liberal judges and who gets to appoint them has a huge impact on the outcome of constitutional cases. It's a really ugly aspect of United States politics. I think it's part of the reason that faith in institutions in the United States is becoming undermined because their highest, most neutral, what should be the most neutral institution, the Supreme Court, is so partisan. Now, Australia, for most of our history, we've avoided that, but I think this voice will be make it much worse. The interpretation of the voice, it's very vaguely worded. Its exact powers are very unclear. The wording, it's explicit that parliament will, any laws parliament make will be subject to the constitution. So it will be judges that determine how this thing works in practice in the years and decades ahead. That means the political persuasion of those judges will be crucial. And that means there is a huge incentive by parliaments to pick people that they think will be on their side. It's, a, it's an ugly, ugly, toxic development and we would be wise to avoid it in Australia. I'd like to get your comment on, a, on another way that um, judicial bodies are becoming political, uh, possibly through the back door. And that is judicial bodies like, for example, the Human Rights Commission, uh, which there's one in every state and there's one federal, and other bodies like, for example, the Australian Health Practitioners Regulation Agency. Now, John, these organisations have the power to, and they use the power, I've got to add, to ruin lives and careers, but they're not governed by the separation of powers. Is this uh, an equally disturbing development? Yes, yes, it is. I mean, these these bodies, they've got something in, in common. They start off trying to address uh, a, a community problem, uh, some, some specific need that, that is generally accepted. They then get infiltrated with activists and they're subject to the legal community groupthink. 
um, which inevitably pushes them down a, a certain path. That's why all these institutions in law firms and the lawyers that run these, um, they, these sort of government bodies, they all get on board with the climate change. They all get on board with diversity, equity, inclusion. They all say yes to the voice. Um, and, and that's why they end up being effectively tools for one side of politics and used against those that disagree. Yeah, it's a toxic mix of bureaucratic power and groupthink. Uh, John Story, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Brad. That's John Story of the Institute of Public Affairs. He's a legal expert and a bit of a full bottle on The Voice as well. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. We've got a very special show coming up for you at eight o'clock. Alan Jones has an exclusive interview with Donald Trump Jr. It's a 25 minute chat and you won't want to miss a bit of it. Alan has told me it's one of, one of the best interviews he's ever had in 40 years of broadcasting. That will be followed by Nick Cater's Battleground and then followed by Save the Nation with the mellifluous Professor David Flint. Now, if you're on our website or app, check out the great Mark Stein, the most entertaining conservative commentator in the world, who's now on ADH. And while you're there, dive into the latest commentary from Damien Curry, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, and more. Tell your friends, ADH is the new home for common sense commentary. And there's no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you tomorrow at seven o'clock. Good night.